My name is Brandon Arnold. I'm the Director of Government Affairs for the Cato Institute. Thank you very much for coming out today. I think we're going to have a, a really fantastic discussion about uh, policy in the Middle East. Uh, before we do get started, I'd like to uh, just make a couple quick housekeeping notes. Uh, first, I'd like to mention uh, the, the Cato Handbook on Policy. This is a, a free publication for, uh, for, Hill, uh, for Hill staffers. It's an A to Z uh, overview of policy issues that you'll be dealing with on Capitol Hill. Um, if you don't already have a copy in your office, please let me know, and I'll, I'll be happy to get one to you. If you need additional copies, let me know. I'd be happy to get them to you. It's a, it's a really great resource. It's also available free on the Internet uh, at www.cato.org um, if you don't actually have a hard copy. Um, secondly, I'd like to uh, really quick plug our Cato's blog, which actually just launched this Monday. It's a pretty exciting project. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of blogs before, uh, but... Uh, apparently, a lot of people are reading them. I think we have a really great product. It's, uh, the website is www.cato-at-liberty.org. So it's cato-at-liberty.org. Um, finally, I'd like to invite everybody to sign up for our, our um, email newsletter, uh, which we send out every day, provide you with an overview of, uh, of uh, events like this, events all over the country that Cato's putting on, uh, recent policy papers, recent op-eds, uh, things that Cato is publishing. Uh, so it's a good way to, to start off your day with a uh, little information from Cato. Um, okay, and with that, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our, uh, our moderator for today and also one of our speakers. Uh, Dr. Tom Palmer is a senior fellow at Cato. He's uh, the director of Cato University, which if you're not familiar with is the, the educational arm of, of Cato, the Cato Institute. He's also the director of uh, the Jack Byrne uh, Project for Middle Eastern Liberty. Uh, and he's here in that capacity today. Uh, Tom was, was very active uh, in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries prior to the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he is now very active in a similar capacity in the Middle East. And with that, I'd like to go ahead and introduce Dr. Tom Palmer. Well, thank you. I think I'm going to start by uh, getting rid of this mesmerizing image behind me. Uh, we're going to start out by uh, having a, a Representative Ryan make some remarks, so I'm going to introduce him first. Uh, he has other pressing business here. Uh, Paul Ryan is a uh, fourth-term Republican serving in the 1st District of Wisconsin. He has uh, shown himself through his distinguished service on the Ways and Means Committee, in which position he's become one of the leading uh, members of Congress on Social Security reform and on free trade. Uh, he's demonstrated a commitment to the ideas of uh, limited government and individual liberty, and most important for our occasion today, a founding member of the Congressional Middle East Economic Partnership Caucus. Paul. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate it. Uh, sorry, my iPod is sticking out here. Excuse me. Um, I, I want to just basically go over what, where we are in Congress with this issue and, and why we decided to form the Middle East uh, Economic Partnership Caucus. Um, as Tom mentioned, uh, we founded this caucus uh, just about two months ago. I serve on the Ways and Means Committee, as Tom also mentioned. And in the Ways and Means Committee, what we traditionally try to do is divide up the labor on our, among our committee members on specializing in certain areas for trade laws. Ways and Means, among other things, oversees all of our trade laws. And so I'm one of the people who, who is tasked with shepherding through all the Middle Eastern trade agreements through the Ways and Means Committee and through the House of Representatives, where we typically have a harder time passing trade agreements through the House than we do through the Senate. Why did I do this? Why did we get involved in this? 
Uh, when I first got elected to Congress, it was 1998, uh, I was elected on a platform of limited government, uh, individual freedom, social security reform, tax reform, health care reform, those kinds of issues. Uh, the Middle East, quite honestly, was not an issue in anywhere in my mind or anywhere in the mind of my constituents. All that changed in 9-11. And I, and as many of you and most of us, came to realize this is a region of people and cultures that we have to understand better. And I am just one who believes that our generation has to do a much better job of understanding each other between our cultures, our countries, and, and these regions. And understanding each other is so deeply facilitated through trade and other things. That's why we form the Middle East Partnership Caucus. Typically, when you have a regional caucus or a country caucus in Congress, it's a caucus for a country. I was the chairman of the Bahrain Caucus. And it's only designed to help get a trade agreement through. Uh, and so instead of having a caucus per country, per trade agreement, whenever it comes up, we thought we needed to do more than that in Congress. And ne we needed to foster a better understanding of Islam, a better understanding of the Middle East, of the culture, of the politics, of the people, and have better exchanges within Congress. Members of Congress need to learn more about the culture, the religion, and the region. That's why we formed the Middle East Economic Partnership Caucus. It's also to advance the President's MIFTA vision, which is the Middle East Free Trade Area Initiative. Why is this important? Trade is more than just a country talking to another country, talking about tariff and non-tariff barriers and facilitating business activity. That's very important. Trade is a rising tide that lifts all boats and produces economic opportunity for people on each side of the agreement. This is more important than that because with trade, the necessary component of trade, of an economic transaction, is trust. So what we seek to achieve by spreading trade connections with the United States and the Middle East is not to improve government-to-government -government relationships. We already have that. It's to improve human-to-human -human interaction and relationships. It's to have businessmen and women, small and large businesses in America, go to the Middle East and develop relationships. And through trade, you have economic transactions that are based upon the premise of trust, mutual be endeavors of, of benefit. That is really important. It's enriching. The other thing we accomplish with trade agreements are that we help facilitate the spread of democratic capitalism. Trade agreements and the way we negotiate trade agreements, a necessary precursor to a trade agreement with the United States is you have to have the building blocks of a free market system. You have to have the building blocks of an open free society. You have to have the rule of law. You have to have transparency individual rights. You have to have enforceable contracts. All of these things that are so important for the foundation of a free market economy and a free society are necessary preconditions to having a trade agreement. And so that's why we believe so strongly in, in the MIFTA, in the Middle East Free Trade Area Initiative. And we've been very successful. We had the Bahrain Agreement that we just enacted uh, earlier this year. We are this close to o Oman we're negotiating with UAE. We've already had Jordan and Israel and Morocco. I hope that we can get negotiations with Egypt underway very soon. When we do this, we tie our people together so that we get this better understanding and we have trade that will improve the economic conditions of people both in the Middle East and in America. 
And that is our, our goal. The goal of the caucus is also to bring a better understanding of the Middle East uh, with our people. Uh, Sheikha Lubna, a, a woman I have great respect for, is the finance minister for the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Sheikha Lubna is, it comes here fairly often, and I don't have to say UAE without you thinking Dubai Ports World and that whole fiasco. So what did we do? We had Sheikha Lubna come and meet with congressional staffers and congressional members to just have a dialogue, to talk about this, to get some better understanding. Um, once we're done with the Omani Agreement, we have the first woman ambassador to a Gulf country, uh, the, the ambassador to Oman, who's going to do a forum on women in politics and women in leadership in the Middle East and in the Gulf. Uh, we're, we're hoping to get Tom Friedman to come and talk about these things. So we're trying to facilitate a better understanding of, of, of the Middle East between members of Congress, staffers in Congress, and more importantly than the American people. Um, I'm one who believes that the most peaceful policy and with the most bang for our buck is trade. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that our foreign policy in Iraq is controversial. You probably don't agree with me, I know, <laughs> but it's controversial. What is not controversial is when we've signed free trade agreements with Morocco, with Bahrain, with Oman, with UAE, with even Egypt, which I think and hope we will get one day. And when we do those things, we do so much to facilitate the rule of law, to facilitate freedom and the march to democracy by planting those seeds of democratic capitalism that we not only will improve uh, the lives of people in the Middle East to, to give young people in these countries better alternatives to what they now experience, but we get better understanding. And, and if our, you know, this is a multi-generation fight, the clash of ideas, the, the battle of the war on terror, and if our generation is going to win this fight, it's by understanding each other and communicating more directly. And that's, that's why I got involved in this. And that's why, um, you know, this Irish Catholic kid from Wisconsin uh, who focused on domestic economic policy is, is a big believer in this because uh, we have no choice. And, and once you, you, you get into this, the, these are beautiful cultures with beautiful people and beautiful countries uh, that have just great opportunities for us economically, but also educationally. And it's just a wonderful experience, and I encourage everybody, especially if those of you who are staffers here, to get involved in this and learn this. And so that is basically what we're doing with this caucus. I think that's kind of what you wanted me to cover. Um, I'd be happy to stop talking or answer questions or whatever you want to do, Tom. A few questions? Sure. Anybody have any questions about this or, you know, anything else? Yeah. Sorry, I just <coughs> wrong tube. That's okay. um, I maybe you were to <coughs> no, no, no. I just <laughs> drank my water too fast. Um, yeah, yeah. It was an overreaction. <coughs> I think some bad aspects came about. Problem was in, in the house. Uh, <coughs> some intelligence information came out at the wrong time by the Armed Services Committee, which raised a lot of security concerns with the actual performance of this company and uh, sensitive uh, goods going through the port. So some real security trade concerns from a national security 
uh, uh, situation arised in, in the week or two preceding that vote, which basically made it a done deal. This is an issue we've got to get behind us. This is an issue that the overreaction is behind us. And we are now still working on, on, on putting together a, a good trade agreement between the Emiratis and, 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 and Americans. And this is an issue I already think is squarely behind us. Um, it didn't go the right way. I think the administration was caught blindsided on this. I think the way it was handled was done poorly. But let's just say this. It's behind us now. We've got to move past this. And the way we move past this and prevent something like this from happening again is to understand each other better and to, and to have better relations and better interactions. That's the way I'd leave it. I don't want to drudge it back up. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, and I just perfect, perfect case of why uh, this works. Uh, for years, uh, Democrats, and I say this with a small d in Morocco, people who are pushing for an open economy, individual rights, they've been trying to get just basic labor laws in place, some basic democratic uh, institutions in place in Morocco, and were stymied. Uh, well, because as a price to the trade agreement, one of the things that America uh, requested as part of our trade agreement are the basic labor laws, basic fundamental individual and human rights, and the building blocks of democratic institutions in order to have a free trade agreement with Morocco. So Morocco, like that, passed some sweeping or, you know, labor laws and individual right-protecting laws in order to get this trade agreement with the United States. So there's a good example of of, of, of a more than decade-long fight for individual rights within Moroccan society that occurred overnight as a consequence of getting a free trade agreement in the United States. Now uh, you have so much more two-way trade, so much more interaction between the people of Morocco and the people of the United States and better understanding, and that's, that's just very, very important. And so the, Moroc the Moroccan agreement is a great example. Uh, Jordanian agreement, you can, we can demonstrate tens of thousands of jobs have been created in Jordan as a consequence of, of the free trade agreement we have with Jordan. Um, and a stabilizing free market economy is, is, is occurring as a consequence of the free trade agreement with Jordan and the laws they had to put into place on, on, on financial services, on intellectual property, on enforceable contracts, all of those things are now in place so that investment capital is so much more stable and secure and predictable in Jordan than it otherwise would have been had we not had this agreement. Yeah. Almost a decade ago, the so-called tiger economies of the Pacific Rim largely collapsed. Uh, they were based upon rapid economic growth due to new trade agreements and, frankly, a huge lack of It's a good question. I see it not happening again because I think we've learned some hard lessons from that. And I think the quality of these trade agreements 
that USTR uh, negotiates with these governments um, are largely uh, aimed toward preventing that from happening by making sure that, that domestic laws are good laws. Uh, more transparency, more accountability, uh, investors will feel safer with their money in these markets because of the laws that are now required to be put in place in these countries in order to get these trade agreements, which was not the case in, 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 in the Tiger Nations in, back in the 80s and the 90s. So I think we have learned um, what, what is necessary to, to help promote stable, open economies, and those are new things that we now are better at negotiating as a part of our trade agreements. The anti-American backlash, well, you know, we don't experience that when we're talking government to government to setting up these trade agreements. We don't experience that. We, ha we experience um, a great demand for having these trade agreements. We made a decision. The president made a very good decision three, four years ago on whether or not to negotiate with the GCC as a whole, uh, with the Saudis in the lead, or to negotiate with each individual Gulf country. And we decided, and the president made this decision, to negotiate with each individual Gulf country. Well, what is, what's the consequence of that? There's a competition to get a trade agreement in place and to pass the laws in your country to, to, you know, through these TIFAs we have, these trade and investment frameworks, uh, to modernize and open your economy to get these trade agreements. So the, the, the pace of reforms in the Middle East has been nothing but accelerated uh, because of the, the trade activity between these negotiations. And our partners, I don't sense an anti-American backlash. On the street and, and on, on TV, yeah, sure. But, but when you're talking government to government and getting these things done, I don't sense an anti-American backlash. And then once trade is, is in place and human interaction um, intensifies, I think you will help dampen that backlash because a lot of people there don't know Americans. They don't know who Americans are, what they stand for. They have this, this notion. Once you spend time with a person and they happen to be an American, I think you can improve a lot of those things. You can improve um, the understanding of cultures by human interaction, and that's what trade agreements get. Well, that's not true. I think the closest thing to Turkey is a democracy. I think you're seeing democratization occur in many different forms throughout the Middle East. And I think Iraq is a reason for that. Uh, you can debate me on that, but I think the Iraq is... It, <clears throat> I think you have democratization. Look at Bahrain. Bahrain is now a constitutional monarchy. Bahrain has its lower house of parliament is directly elected by the people. Uh, they have a Sharia, which is the upper house, which is an appointed uh, uh, legislator, but they have a lower house that's directly elected. Um, women can hold office. Women can vote. Women are in cabinet ministries. So you're seeing individual rights being given to citizens around the Middle East that didn't have it before, especially women, which is new. That's nothing but good. It's morally right, but it's also you know, pragmatically the right thing to do because it, it has more constituents for freedom and individual rights being firmly implanted in these countries as a consequence of these trade agreements and the democratization that has occurred, uh, I think, in, in, a, in a lot of part because of Iraq. Uh, time for one more? Okay. How about the guy with the pen in his hand?
you're right about that. There's one exception, Middle East free trade agreements. Uh, the, the way we set up our caucus, three Republican co-chairs, three Democrat co-chairs. Totally a bipartisan caucus. Uh, I work with Charlie Ringo and Ben Cardin. I talked to them three times yesterday about the Omani agreement. And, and they're, they're the Democrats on Ways and Means that are in charge of the, uh, their side of, of trade. The Bahrain trade agreement got the best vote count we've ever gotten in, in recent history on trade agreements. We have gone to painful lengths to make the Middle Eastern trade agreements bipartisan trade agreements. Morocco was bipartisan. Jordan was bipartisan. Bahrain was bipartisan. And we are this close to making Oman bipartisan. Um, look, I'm a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Democrats typically are more protectionist. Republicans are typically more free trade. But that's clearly not a brush you can paint on every Republican or every Democrat. Um, Democrats are more apt to oppose a trade agreement, CAFTA, probably Peru and Colombia. But, but the Democrats I work with on Ways and Means want to support trade agreements with the Middle East because they realize these agreements are much more than an economic transaction. They realize that this is, is, is more important for our foreign policy than it really is for our economic policy. Democrats get that. And so, and so do Republicans. And so these agreements are a notable exception to the partisanship that typically surrounds trade agreements. And I think, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a markup in Ways and Means next week on Oman. And, you know, knock on wood, it will be a bipartisan uh, get-together. And, and I think we're real close to getting that. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I hope I didn't take too much time. So, thanks, Ron. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I'd like to talk for a moment then, something that's complementary to what the uh, Congressman presented, and that is a private initiative that the Cato Institute has undertaken. No government funding, no taxpayer backing behind this. Uh, it's an entirely private in initiative, the Jack Byrne Project on Middle East Liberty, to spread the ideas of liberty in the Middle East. I'd like to mention very quickly just a couple of the problems faced by Middle Eastern countries. Some of them, but not all, suffer from the oil curse. Turns out we have learned finding oil on your land if you do not already have well-developed independent judiciary is a catastrophe. And this is a very serious problem to work out in countries that have this. Russia is experiencing this now as well. The oil curse is driving Russia toward authoritarianism because it generates a state finance uh, through resource rents. In other words, the state is not dependent on the taxpayers. The people are dependent on the state. And it generates a very different kind of political culture. There's very low development in most countries of the private sector. Sometimes people call that civil society. But by that, I also mean private independent businesses and what we might call productive activities that are, are based on rights. Very little stock market. Stock markets are based on having trust that your shares will be respected when you go to sell them, for example. Uh, protectionism and statism, one of the things you'll find, I'll talk about this in a moment, is the tiny amount of literature on the, what we'll call the liberal tradition of the West, speaking very broadly, the idea of liberty, available in Arabic or Kurdish or other languages. Turkish is an exception in this regard. But what you will find is all the works of Marx, Engels, Lenin and Stalin were all translated. And this actually did leave behind an unfortunate residue that you can still find among many Arab intellectuals uh, to this day. 
protectionism and statism, the Arab world is astonishingly protectionist against their neighbors. Very little trade. In fact, if you take the whole Arab world together, take out one commodity, the amount of trade that they do is less than the foreign trade of Belgium. Give you a sense of what protectionism has done in that part of the world. And then intellectual isolation. So where we can have some impact is trying to provide an alternative to the ideologies of intolerance, statism, socialism, nationalism, and one of the most lethal combinations is Marxist economics or socialist thinking combined with nationalism, an utterly toxic uh, brew, and violence that plague uh, Middle Eastern societies. So the challenge is to make liberty a Middle Eastern idea. I'm very, very committed to this. If it's presented as a foreign idea, naturally people react to this. It has roots in the Middle East. It is a human idea, the idea that every human being should be equal before the law. It is well-rooted in the tradition in that culture. And indeed, a photo from the British Museum. This is the first written expression of the idea of liberty in any language, Omaji, and it comes from the city of Lagash, which is Tello in contemporary Iraq. There are deep roots to this tradition in the Middle East as well. We hope to recover that uh, tradition. To introduce the ideas of freedom, uh, I've been active in a number of countries lecturing. These are from Iraq. Spoke to the Iraqi parliament, to uh, civic associations, university audiences, and the like. More significantly, and I think it'll have a more lasting influence, is the Lamp of Liberty, which is an Arabic website that we've established. Uh, Misbah al-Huria, but for those who can't remember how to spell it, uh, we have it just Lamp of Liberty as well. We'll take you to the same uh, position. It's the same URL. It's an online library of freedom. We have Classics of Liberty, which are works by Madison and Voltaire and other significant figures like that. Policies of Liberty, which are detailed policy studies of issues like free trade, the relationship between free trade and economic growth. So a lot of uh, uh, wonk-like material available in Arabic. Very little of this is available now to educated Arabs. Short commentaries, and I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing with those. Op-ed sort length essays by Arab intellectuals or foreign intellectuals. We have several books. You can get the whole book online and download it or print it out in PDF format. Because the Arab world is so segmented in its book markets, a book published in Lebanon will be very, very hard to get in Morocco, for example. So if you imagine you had the American book market, if you had 40 or 50 separate book markets, very, very difficult for books to circulate. But fortunately, the Internet is available uh, virtually every place except this room. Uh, we have the uh, Lighthouse of Liberty, uh, which is a, a newsletter that we uh, send out online in Arabic. Streaming video essay contest. We've worked with uh, Zainab Al-Suwaj's organization on that and a lot more. There's a growing list of authors and the features that are available on the site. The resolution here is a little bit grainy, but you can go visit it on your own. Uh, we have classic authors, uh, Frederick Bastiat, Voltaire, Adam Smith, Ibn Khaldun, uh, and others, both from the Arab tradition, but also from Europe and elsewhere. Uh, I have a few others who are up here. We're working right now on the complete John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which we hope to publish as a book and also have available online. 20th Century Giants of Freedom, these are some of the authors 
whose works we've translated and made available, Ludwig von Mises, Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science. Very important for pointing out, science does not advance if criticism is not possible. Criticism is absolutely necessary, and criticism is not the same as an insult. It's a very important cultural attitude to develop. You can be critical of someone else without shaming them or insulting them. Uh, Rose Wilder Lane, uh, she uh, wrote also on the Arab world a very loving tributes to the idea of liberty in the Middle East, and of course uh, Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel Prize winner. Some contemporary writers, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Shafiq Gabra, who until recently was uh, 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 president of the American University of Kuwait, Mario Vargas Llosa, a great Peruvian uh, novelist. So we're bringing in not just Americans by any means, but people from all around the world, the Arab world as well as Latin America, Europe, Russia, and elsewhere. Uh, Raja Kamal from the University of Chicago. We have now uh, online video. So we have all of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose video series has been put in an uh, online streaming form dubbed entirely into Arabic. I'll show you a clip of that in a moment. And then the reason we're here today, the Declaration of Independence in the United States Constitution. Uh, we publish these in English. Uh, we came out a couple of years ago with a bilingual Spanish and English edition, particularly relevant with what we've been seeing today in the demonstrations. Uh, we want to welcome people to be citizens if they understand the basic principles of limited government and a free society. And now we've done this in Arabic as well for two basic reasons. Number one is to make sure that Arab Americans understand they are welcome equal citizens. And if their native language is Arabic, they can read the Declaration and the Constitution in their native language, and facing English pages, they could practice their English as well to become better acquainted with that. But also for the Arab countries of the Middle East to just give them a view on what America is like. I have met with lots of Middle Eastern journalists, and sometimes the questions are quite astonishing. Uh, they'll say, but of course in America it is illegal to criticize Israel. Well, no. <laughs> Turn on any television program. It's not illegal. They didn't know that. They didn't know that what a free press is. This comes up in the context of the Danish controversy. Many people, because they have no experience of a free press, assume the Danish government had published these or had somehow approved those cartoons. Therefore, the Danes were responsible because they just haven't experienced the free press in their own countries. So we're distributing these very, very aggressively uh, in the United States and in the Middle East. Um, we've been sending a lot of let me go back here ah, uh, books for libraries. Uh, we have a container that's supposed to arrive in Jordan in about a week's time, and then a trucking company that will be taking them to various university libraries that we have negotiated with to donate to them for their economics, political science, history, and law libraries. We do op-eds in newspapers. Uh, we syndicate them now to the Arab press. We've just started this recently. And each article carries our website address, the Lamp of Liberty. So it helps to drive traffic. If someone reads it, says that's interesting, they can come to the website and find out more. So one that just appeared a couple of days ago by my colleague David Bowes, philosophical perspective on what are rights and what are responsibilities. Uh, more informed discussion of public policy, William Easterly, author of a number of excellent books on economic development, uh, why foreign aid doesn't work, why dependency on foreign aid is not the recipe to success. 
We do online uh, promotion and advertising. These are some of the banner ads we run on Arabic websites. They're very interactive and uh, professionally done. Uh, this one was, this is Al Jazeera. Um, we had our, the top line is our banner ad that's been appearing there uh, very, over the last week. Uh, we work a lot with Arab bloggers. Just recently now, blogging software is available entirely in Arabic. Before, you had to know English or French or German or something to read the software. But people now put together completely Arabic. All the little windows that pop up are in Arabic so that anybody can have their own blog. Go to an Internet cafe. You can set one up. And we're working with uh, Arab bloggers as well to get this buzz through the Internet of these ideas. We also work with the media on free media coverage. SMS campaigns, uh, thank God, unknown in this country to get SMS or text messaging spam. But it is actually fairly common in many Middle Eastern countries as a way to propagate ideas, and we're now beginning that. The sum of it is that the Arab world is going to benefit from a greater understanding of liberty, and so will the rest of the world. We think this will also be good for us to generate this set of ideas and to allow people there the intellectual tools with which to begin to reform their own societies. Ultimately, it's up to them. You cannot impose it from outside. But if the tools and the ideas are made available, people there may be able to do something important with them. Before we go to a discussion, I'd like to introduce a good friend who will be discussing the significance of this uh, for Arab speakers. Uh, Zainab Al-Suwaj is someone I very greatly admire. She's the executive director of the American Islamic Congress, originally from Basra. Uh, she had uh, left Iraq for Kuwait, and then two weeks later, Saddam invaded. And as she likes to say, this man just couldn't live without me. Uh, she was involved in the resistance there and later returned to Basra and had some very harrowing, uh, astonishing uh, difficult experiences there, was able to escape through Jordan, came to the United States of America, uh, became an American citizen, and then after 9-11 had the same experience all the other Americans had, shock and horror, and she resolved that she was going to do something about this and established the American Islamic Congress, a group I'm very happy to work with that I think does outstanding work. Say now. Thank you, Tom. Um, good afternoon, and great to be here. Um, uh, and I'm so honored uh, to be part of uh, unveiling the, uh, uh, this great document today. First, I would like to start by reading some of it in a um, few sentences from it in Arabic. And it sounds, I'm sure, beautiful as it sounds in English as well. نحن نؤمن بهذه الحقائق البديهية إن جميع البشر قد خلقوا متساوين وإن خالقهم قد منحهم حقوقا معينة ثابتة لا يمكن انتزاعها منهم ومن بينها حق الحياة والحرية والسعي من أجل السعادة What a great document I am so... Uh, thrilled and honored to be uh, um, 
part of the unveiling of this wonderful document today. It is um, it's a great key to democracy. And especially if we want to um, introduce uh, democracy to the Middle East, we need to have this as a key. And uh, we need to have it as a, the document to introduce it to the Arab world. This has never happened before again. And it's new to have this uh, um, Bills of Rights, um, Americans' Bills of Rights introduced to the Arab world. Um, when I'm in the Middle East, many people ask me, how do I practice my life there? As a, an Arab Muslim woman covered, am I discriminated against? Am I this? Am I that? Um, I wish uh, Dr. Palmer translated this before to make my life easy when I travel, but I'm glad he did finally. And the answer is always, yes, I am living in America as an Arab American woman, uh, practicing my, my rights, uh, and living as any other citizen in this country. And many ask me, because you are veiled, uh, probably you have some difficulties. And I will tell them about a story happened to me uh, right after 9-11. I was working in an organization um, to um, resettle refugees, and I was the only Muslim um, in the organization. One day I walked into my office, and I saw all my female colleagues wearing a scarf in solidarity with me. That touched me so deep inside and made me feel that you know, I am not only an American on a document, but I am part of this um, part of this country, part of this society. So, from this story, I want to see that I want the people of the Arabic-speaking people to know about this great document and how, it, as much as changed my life here and changed mil millions of people's life, can change their life also. I think this document is very important to the people of the um, Arabic world to be um, uh, written in their own language. It's very important to have the um, Arab-speaking Americans here in the country reading it and know about their rights, their uh, freedom, and what they are enjoying here. Also important for uh, people uh, who are in the Middle East to read it and know about what we are uh, having in this country. And the last thing is important to the Arab reformers who are yearning to have the change happening in their own countries. If they read um, the doc this document, their life will be totally changed and we will be looking at, at them in, in a different way and they would be looking at us here in the United States in a different way as well. I think this will help millions of people overseas in the Arab world and millions of Arab Americans inside this country to uh, understand how important it is to have equality and freedom, liberty, and uh, free market. I would like to... Um, comment on um, and thank Dr. Um, Tom Palmer as an individual 
to take this initiative and for Cato Institute as um, um, an institute who, who supported it. And also I would like to comment on one other thing is uh, Musbah al-Hurriya or Lamb of Liberty website. It's been a great resource for so many uh, people overseas and as much as many people here. Especially it's written in Arabic and I think this initiative to have a website that's written in Arabic for Arabic speaker people um, it's very um, very important because I don't think any other think tank or an institute here, they do have such a, um, um, a website. And I have one of my uh, um, employees a week ago, she, I was talking about um, Cato Institute and I told her, and, and the first thing she said, is that the institute that they have their website in Arabic? And I'm like, yes it is. She said, this is so great because I have a lot of people and a lot of friends, they wanted this information, they cannot get it uh, in their um, uh, local libraries or in their universities. And now it's, guess what, available on the internet. So everyone can read it and can get the information and the reports and the books that they need to, um, to, to develop their lives and their experience. So thank you so much. And um, it's a, a great honor again. And um, keep it up. Thank you. should mention in the packets outside is a wonderful essay that uh, Zeynab wrote on the cartoon controversy, uh, Persuasion, the Alternative to Violence. We had it translated into English uh, and published, uh, but then also it was so interesting, we uh, put it on our Russian website as well, because there are many Muslims in uh, Russian-speaking Muslims. And by the way, I should point out we also have very active Russian publishing and also Spanish language publishing and occasionally English as well. Uh, but you might want to uh, read Zainab's essay about that. I would like to thank all of you for being here and to thank Zainab for her presentation. And lastly, for the Arab speakers here, if you have criticisms, we want to hear them, please. <laughs>